Amen, amen. It is amazing what the Lord does when you put him before all things. Hey, how are we doing, church? Doing okay? You look great. Uh, grab your Bibles. I hope you got them. If not, we've got a free one in the seat back in front of you. That is our gift to you. You can have that. Uh, take it home with you. We are going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 21. We're in the ninth week of this study on Joshua. All the church experts say you should never do a series longer than four weeks. And we say, whatever, we're going... I think, I can't remember how long this one is, longer than four. And uh, the first series we ever did was 18 months, so we just do what we do here. We study the Bible. So grab it, go to Joshua. It's way back at the beginning, towards the, towards the beginning. It's the sixth book of the Bible, so grab it and go there. Um, hey, it's good to be back. I just need you to know this. A week ago today, uh, I, was, I was on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. How cool is that, right? So I literally, that's where I wrote this, wrote this sermon, where Jesus calmed the storm, walked on water. I'm sitting there with my Bible, doing my quiet time, and a dove walked by. Hello, Holy Spirit. Welcome to my uh, quiet time. Appreciate you being here once again. And so uh, it's pretty awesome. So just know this. I did. I just got back from Israel last week, and, um, and part of it was just a vision trip. I'll take all of you with me in the coming years, and so we'll open up those kind of trips. And also know this. Pretty much every story that I have for the next year is going to start this way. This one time when I was in Israel, you know, that's how it'll be, okay? <clears throat> and it was. It was powerful. We went to the empty tomb. We went to Golgotha where, where Christ was crucified. I preached the sermon on the southern steps where Peter preached Pentecost, and nobody got saved, and nobody listened. I was the only one there, and the people I paid to listen to me, they were standing there like, hey, we got to go to lunch. I'm like, eh, you shut up. I'm about to preach, okay? And so I just preached to the air. I don't care. Uh, and it was awesome. But I'm going to tell you one of the things, a very powerful moment for me. I went to Caesarea Philippi, and if you're new to Bible study, these are all like really important places. So I went to Caesarea Philippi. We're in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And right there in the, in the side of this mountain is this cave, and they thought that was the gates of hell. And so I sat on some rock, and I'm just guessing, God, maybe this is the rock you were standing on with your disciples. You said, upon this rock I will build my church. And the rock he was talking about was the public proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I prayed. Heavy, I mean, it's a heavy prayer. I'm like, Lord, that thing that we do in Jacksonville on the weekends, May it always be what you were talking about when you were in this place, saying that upon my rock, the public declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord, upon the gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so if you wonder why we just go gospel, 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 gospel every single week here, if you wonder why I really only have one sermon with just a different intro, then that is why. Because God does not say he's going to build his church on extracurricular activities that a lot of church does. And I'm not anti those things. But the, the church will be built on that. And so even as we look through the book of Joshua, just know this. We're going to talk about Joshua for sure. But it always points to Jesus and what he came to do. And that was to rescue people like, like you and I. So we're going to continue there. And even though last week was incredible, I mean, it was awesome. You just need to know this. There's no other place I would rather be than right here, not on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, but I'd rather be here at Walmart and in a sports bar at Bay Meadows preaching the gospel to this church because I love who we are and I love what God is doing in and among us. Amen? Amen. So I'm glad you are here. And so <clears throat> let's grab Joshua, and, and I'm only going to preach uh, three verses, jo Joshua 21, 43, 44, and 45. We'll spend about an hour on each one, and then we'll get right out of here, okay? <laughs> the first timer's like, really? And you're like, sort of. Okay, so uh, here we go. Joshua chapter 21, verse 43. It says this, Thus the Lord gave to Israel 
all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. So what happens from chapter one where God looks at Joshua and says, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be afraid for the Lord your God is with you. You're gonna take the the children of Israel who have been wandering for 40 years in the desert, you're gonna cross over the Jordan, we went there too, you're gonna cross over the Jordan and every city in the promised land I'm gonna give to you. So by the time you get to chapter 21, all of that God had given in verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. Now, if you're brave enough to underline in your Bible, and I check with him, he's totally okay with it, okay? I want you to underline the word rest. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. Just as he had sworn to their fathers, not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all of their enemies into their hands, verse 45, not not one word of all the good promises, and underline those words, all the good promises, not one word, of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So now you've got rest underlined, and you underlined, not underlined it, and you've got uh, all the good promises. And then what I want you to do in your Bibles, okay, men too, come on, everybody's playing along here. I want you to draw a line between all the good promises and rest. Because I think, I think that the reason that Israel had rest on every side is because they actually believe that God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. And that that is a truth that you can rest in. And that's the point of the whole message. That that when we believe that God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises, that's the rest that you and I were looking for. So, So let me ask you this. Do you have rest I mean, like right now, in your current circumstances, would you describe your life as restful? In, in fact, <clears throat> you know what a legitimate greeting is in America? It's this, you staying busy, isn't it? Isn't that a way we, we say hey to each other? Hey man, I haven't seen you while. You staying busy? And if the person responds back to you, what if they said, no, not really, I try not to be busy. I live in margin, I take rest. You know what, I, feel, I really feel rested right now. We, you would be like, are you in a cult? What is wrong with you? Oh, you're European, right? Y'all take like four hour naps every day. Don't do anything. That's why your whole world's falling apart, all right? Not us here in America. We get stuff done. We're busy. We go to work. I mean, honestly, answer something. The next time somebody asks you, hey, man, how you doing? Are you staying busy? You just answer this way. No, 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 no. I'm very rested. And watch their face. They'll be like, what is wrong with you? Or how about if you ask your kids or you ask your roommate to describe your life? Would they describe it as rested? Or would they describe it as busy? Do you know every email I get from you people starts out this way? Hey, Pastor Joey, I know you're busy, but... And I think, uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, that is the prevailing thought about my life. In fact, my own kids one time, JP, JP said to me, Daddy, how come we're always in a hurry? And I was like, because you're so slow. Let's go, boy. Go, go. Put on your shoes. we got places to be. <laughs> Does it describe your life? I mean, your life is probably like my life, right? You wake up earlier than you really want to, but you got to set an alarm, and the xylophone doesn't wake you up anymore, so you got to go with, y'all on that one too? And you set your phone across the room so it shocks you into your day, and then you go over, and you get the kids ready, and you get you ready, and then you're out the door, and you've got something, so you got to go back in the door, and then go back out the door, and then you join that rat race, and it's like Daytona trying to get to work or school or wherever, and you're honking, and you're moving, and you're doing all that stuff, and then you finally get to work, and your inbox is full, or your to-do list is already packed, and then you get home later than you promised you would get home, and there's more work to do when you get home than there was at work, and you fight with your wife, fight with your kids, get everybody to bed, try to watch your favorite TV show and fall asleep, wake up again, do it all week, and then your biggest prayer of the week is, thank God, it's Friday. (laughs) Kind of describes all of us, doesn't it? 
you know you weren't created for that? Now, you were created for rest. My favorite seminary professor told me this on the day I graduated from seminary. He said this. He said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Uh, hopefully the uh-oh factor is way up high in the room right now. Uh-oh. Because the reality is, is that God created you for rest. Now, I kind of wish I could divide the room into two halves, put all the millennials over here and be like, okay, no, 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 no. Get up early, go to work, work hard, put down the Xbox controller, go to sleep tired every night. Okay, I kind of wish I could tell the 30 and under crowd that. But the 40 and up crowd, I wish I could say, hey, get over yourself. You're not going to rule the world. Okay, can you just relax a second and take a nap? But since we're all here together, we just got to deal with it where we are. That, that, that this is not what God has for us. What God has for us, he, to his children, it said the Lord gave them rest. And you guys know there's a difference between just rest and sleep. I hope you know this, right? I mean, you might sleep enough, but you still not, might not have rest. The difference between rest and sleep is kind of like the difference between, um, between a vacation and a trip. You know what the difference between vacation and a trip is? You take your children on a trip. You have never had your children with you on a vacation. There is no such thing as a Disney vacation. Do you understand? It is a Disney trip. Now, we love it, and we go, and we have a good time. We're Disney people now. But that is not, that is not rest. You see, rest, Gretchen and I, uh, next month, we are going to Napa, and that's a vacation. Okay, it'll be very Pentecostal. Do you know what that means? We'll be speaking in tongues and laying on hands. Can I get an amen, okay? And listen, my people usually don't go to Napa. I told my daddy, daddy, we're going to Napa. And he said, what's wrong with your truck? Okay, so that's, that's where we're from. <laughs> but there's nothing to do there. You just go out and you're at these things. And I'm not even a wine person, but I love it, man. I'm just there with my, my wife and just swirl it like this. What are we doing? I don't know they're doing it. That's what I do. <laughs> drink that stuff. Oh, rest. It's good. You see, just like there's a difference between a vacation and a trip, there's a, there's a difference between rest and sleep. And God commanded us to rest. I mean, it's in the Big Ten. It's the fourth one. And you know this. We all have the Ten Commandments memorized because we're good 1122ers. And we did a whole series on this last year. And, and it's a big deal. God commands us to rest. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And on that day, you shall do no work. You shall rest. And most of us are like, do people even pay attention to that anymore? I mean, other than Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A, and most of us get mad about that. In fact, half our church grows because people try to go to Hobby Lobby on a Sunday and they end up in here, you know. And they're like, well, I might as well go. I'm here. So welcome. <laughs> but God actually commands us to rest. And, and the, the, the early rabbis, you know what they said? They said that the fourth commandment was the hinge commandment, that the first three commandments were about our vertical relationship with God, about us and God. And commandments five through 10 were horizontal commandments about our relationship with others. And that fourth commandment was the only way to make possible the great commandment that Jesus gave that said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The fourth day is the day that you, or the fourth commandment is the day that you rejuvenate and you refuel and you replenish so that because God love, God's love lives in you, then his love can pour out of you onto your neighbors. Commandments 5 through 10. You see, he commands us to rest in the fourth commandment. And not only that, it gives us the reason, and it says the reason that you are to rest is because on the seventh day, God rested. And why did God rest? Did he rest because he was tired? No. The Bible says he never sleeps or slumbers. That means God never gets tired. That even after God created everything that he created in the world, it wasn't even that hard for him. He just spoke, and there it was. But do you know why he rested on the seventh day? 
See, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you read the creation account, it says, like, God spoke and something happened. He said, that's good. And he kept doing it over and over and over. He separates the day from night. He goes, that's good. And he creates land and the seas, and he goes, that's good. And then he populates the the cosmos with the sun and the star and the moons, and he says, that's good. And then he populates the, the sea with sea creatures, and he goes, that's good. And he puts animals and plants and all that on the land, and he goes, that's good. And it's not until the sixth day when he creates his prized creation, the only thing created in his image, and he goes, ooh, now that's very good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. Not because he was tired, but the reason that God rested and can say that is very good is because he was utterly satisfied with the work that he had done. That's what rest is. So listen, if you're a Christian, the reason that you can rest is because you're utterly satisfied in the work, not that you have done, but was done on your behalf when Jesus was on the cross. And when he pushed up on his nail-pierced feet and he cried out, it is finished, it meant your to-do list is over. It meant that the performance trap and the pretending game are done because of Christ perfect work on the cross. And because of that, you and I can rest. The book of Hebrews will say it this way in chapter 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, that's us. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So that's why we rest, because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Not only that, you've got to think about when, when When Moses gave this fourth commandment, do you know who he was giving it to? He was giving it to a generation of slaves. Every day of their life, they worked every day of their life. And then Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai with 10 commandments, and one of the commandments is this. You're going to get all your work done in six days, and on the seventh day, you just get to relax. Can you imagine the gift that that is to a bunch of slaves? This means, wow, we really are free. We're free to take a day off. You know what this means today for you and I? That if you can't take a day off to rest, then you're a slave. You're a slave either to your boss or your business or your industry or maybe your own ego or maybe your own set of values that you've set to validate yourself or maybe your own insecurity. But you are not free if you can't take a day off and rest and rejuvenate and refuel in God. And so, did you ever think about the first thing that Adam and Eve ever did? was rest. I mean, think about it. They are created on the first day of their week. The first day of their existence was the Sabbath. That God creates them, and there's plenty of work to be done. And after he creates them, he goes, okay, guess what? Today is a day off. And they're like, wow, we're not even tired. Yeah, because you're not just supposed to rest from work, but you're supposed to rest so that you can be ready to do everything that God has called you to do. I mean, listen, folks, God created us with this daily need to rest, I think, so it's a daily reminder that the world does not revolve around you, and all of us have to stop. And you'll either stop or you'll stop. Those are your options. I mean, look, your cell phone needs to be recharged. And think about how frantic you get when you're running low on battery and you don't have the place to plug it in. You should see our office at like 3.30 in the afternoon when people didn't manage their battery life well and they forgot their charger. They're walking around like, hey, I need a hit. I need a hit. Anybody got a charger? You got a charger? Oh, no, that's a five. You got to get a six. Come on, keep up with the times, people. What's wrong with you? And they're running around like, oh, what do I do? And you laugh because it's true, isn't it? See, God created us to rest. And then Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. That's probably all of us. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. And he says, and I will give you rest for your soul. You see, that's the greatest invitation I've ever heard in my life. <clears throat> and some of us are like, okay, well, you know, I've come to Jesus, but, but I don't have rest. I'm worried, and I'm anxious, and I'm busy. And maybe it's because, maybe it's because you're not finding rest because we're not believing the promises of God. That if we'd actually believe that God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promise, the result of that would be rest for our souls. Dan Buckles, one of our elders, a few elder-led prayers ago, he said this. He said, I know you believe in God, but do you believe God? And that's different. And maybe if you and I would begin to, to, to believe in the promises of God, that he is who he says he is and he always keeps his promise, then that's the kind of rest for our souls that we've been looking for. Now, you'll notice here in Joshua 21, 44, it says that the Lord gave them rest on every side. And God gave them rest on every side. And I think what happens is you and I have a spiritual enemy, the devil, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he typically comes at us from every side. For some of us, he comes at us from our past. For some of us, he comes at us like in our current circumstances. And for some of us, he comes at us from the future. And there's some, there's some of us in the room, I'm probably in this category, and some of us kind of stress out and we worry about the past. And the way it happens here at 1122 most often is this. At the end of a service or through a prayer card or whatever, I end up in a conversation with somebody that's heard the gospel and they want to believe the gospel, but they come away saying, you know what, but I'm just too far gone. Or it'll come up this way. We've got baptism coming up June 5th, I think. And there'll be people that have surrendered their life to Christ. And although they've surrendered to Christ, somehow in their head, they can't get it through their mind that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of Christ. And so when it comes to baptism, they'll say, but I'm not worthy. And you see, what's happening in that moment is the enemy, the father of lies, is sneaking into their world and saying, because of your past, because of your past, then God can't really love you. You see, the promise that we're not believing is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And anytime the Bible has the word therefore, you've got to see what it's there for. So you back up to chapter 7, and you know what the end of chapter 7 is about? It's kind of a tongue twister. Paul, who's a pretty good Christian, by the way, can we just agree on that? Paul's the guy who in prison says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Okay, that dude that says, if you kill me, sweet, I'll be with Jesus. If you don't kill me, sweet, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. That's, that's kind of where he is, all right? So he's not praying that he finds his car keys and stuff. He's praying that Roman jailers go to heaven. That's his prayer life, okay? And in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I have this war going on within me. I want to do good, and evil's right there with me. The things I don't want to do, I do, and these things I don't want to do, I do. That's what chapter 7 is about. And he goes, woe to me, what am I going to do? And then he, he basically lays out the gospel and says, well, thank God it's not my works, but it's the work of Jesus on the cross that I find my salvation. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, some of you look over your shoulder and you see your past and you think you're unworthy. And in your own works you were, but in Christ you were, you were made a new creation that when God Almighty sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Hey, how about all you Catholics, which is like thousands of us here, okay? You, not, I never was one. They wouldn't let me. But uh, <laughs> you know the little necklaces that you wear? And it's got saint, such and such on there? Biblically speaking, we should make a necklace with your face on it. 
Because if you're in Christ, the Bible says that you're a saint. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, be careful of that when you go home, right? And you tell your wife, well, you better call me Saint Ted. All right, don't, that's not what we're talking about here. But, but the reality is that the enemy comes in, and what the enemy tries to get you to believe is that God doesn't love you. He loves some future version of you once you get your act together. Could not be further from the truth. Or another lie that the enemy comes after us is this, is that, is that your sin or your past mistakes define you. And the reality is, is that when your past steals the rest that God is offering in the present, then you are, believe, you are not believing God's promises and you are believing the lies of the enemy. One of the key things you can do as a follower of Jesus is you better identify the voices in the head that you're hearing. Now, if you're hearing them too loud and too often, you should probably see a professional, but I'm just talking about kind of the whispers. You know what I'm talking about? You ever get the whispers? Let me tell you how it plays out in my life almost weekly. It happens a couple of times, all right? When I walk up on this stage to deliver the gospel, I get the whispers. I start hearing them. The enemy gets in my ear, and he's like, if they only knew. If they only knew what a crappy husband you are, what a selfish man you are, how prideful you are, how greedy you are, if they only knew what you think about the ones looking at you right now, they would disqualify you. I get the whispers. Or I get the, you know what? If a group of them got on a bus and went to Dillon, South Carolina, and interviewed six or eight people there, they would come back and say, don't follow that hypocrite. I mean, I just get you. You ever get them? Or at the end of the service, here's how it goes. You, you try to encourage me, and I know what you're trying to say, but you say it in the worst way ever. You'll come in, and you'll say, like, Pastor Joby, you've changed my life. I can't change Jack. But I know what you mean. Like, Jesus changed your life. I happen to have the microphone on. I understand that. I appreciate the encouragement. I really do. It does mean a lot. But in that moment, I, the whispers begin to go, if they only knew. If they only knew the people that you've hurt, the people that you've abused, that it always has to be your way. And in that moment, I just have to to understand that there is a father telling me that, but it's the father of lies, and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that my heavenly father would never talk to me like that. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's what I need you to know. That God's grace poured out on the cross is bigger than whatever your past is. So let's just get real practical that the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than your affair. You are not your affair. That the grace of Jesus Christ is bigger than your addiction. You are not your addiction. And here's what I mean. I know a bunch of you go to meetings. I'm pro-meetings. Keep going to the meetings, okay? God uses those meetings. But when you introduce yourself as an addict, it's not altogether true because in Christ, you are not your addiction. In Christ, you are bought and paid for an adopted son or daughter of the Most High King. Your entire record has been wiped away and you have been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and only your creator gets to tell you who you are, not some label that we make up for you. It's just true. And you are not your abortion, and you are not your orientation, and you are not your divorce, and you are not your bankruptcy, and you are not your failed business, and you are not your failed marriage, and you are not all of your successes. You are not those things. But in Christ, you are a part of the family of the Most High God. And so the moment that the enemy begins to creep in and whisper those things to you, and whisper that condemnation. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's a big difference between condemnation and conviction. You see, condemnation, is, is, it comes from the father of lies, the devil himself. And, and to be condemned, like when a building inspector condemns a building, it says, unfit for use. 
And that's what the enemy tries to get you to believe. But then Jesus comes in and says, no, 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 actually, I'm gonna live in that building. That's what it means to be the temple of God. I'm gonna take up residence in that very building, enemy, that you said was unfit for use. That's perfect for me to kind of work a miracle in. You see, the opposite of that is, is conviction. Condemnation has you run and hide and cover up our sin. Conviction of the Holy Spirit, which happens. It's not always fun. And I know some of you think that your spouse emails me every Saturday night and say, talk about this. I promise they don't email me. All right, I don't know you. I don't know your story. <laughs> My favorite one, on Thursday night, one time this lady came up and said, honey, I've told you this before, but I love it. Honey, if you got to tell me something, you can just call me. You ain't got to say it in front of all these people. That's what she said. <laughs> I love it. See, that ain't me. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he would love you enough to take that hammer and chisel and begin to chisel away everything in your life that doesn't look like Jesus. But conviction of the Holy Spirit calls us to run to our Heavenly Father because we know we're running into his grace-filled arms. Amen. You see, so if, if, if the side that is stealing your rest that God has for you is because you're not believing in the promise of the gospel, then know this. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's some of us, you know, we look over our shoulder in the past, and there's some of us, and we stress out and we worry about our current circumstances. I mean, we look around, we look around at what's going on now, and you say, uh, Pastor, I don't, I don't have condemnation. I got bills. I mean, I, I owe more than I have. I mean, my financial situation is a wreck. Or there are some of you, and you're obsessed with your relational situation. And it's defining you, and you're all stressed out, and you're wondering if you're ever going to get married. I mean, there's some of you that are single, and you want to be married so bad, you just can't stand it. And there's some of you, you're married, and you want to be single so bad, and you can't stand it. <laughs> it's stressful. And then um, <clears throat> some of you are worried about you had not had a job in seven months, or you're worried about your kids, you know? I mean, uh, you, you're getting bad reports back from school. You're like, how do you fail the third grade, and what's wrong with them? And you got a bad report from the doctor or the psychologist, or, or maybe you got a bad health report, and you begin to look around at the things going on right now, and, and your current circumstances are stealing the rest that God has for you. Well, Jesus makes a promise in John chapter 16. Jesus says this. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, and these things that he says to you, it starts all the way back in John chapter 14, and Jesus lays out the gospel. He says, I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to die a sinner's death. They're going to bury me in the ground on the third day. I'm going to get up from the tomb. I'm going to rise to the right hand of my Father in heaven, but take heart because I'm going to send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to live within you. And he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That word peace there, it's a Greek word. It's the same word as the Hebrew in Joshua for rest. Think about this. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, and in this world you will have tribulation. There's a promise of God. Is trouble coming your way? Christian, I'm not saying it's easy, but you should never be surprised. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And if you look at the context in which Jesus is speaking these words, do you know what he gets up from this conversation and goes to? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where he prays so hard that, that he begins to sweat drops of blood. And he says, Father, if, if there be any other way, let this cup of your wrath pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. He's arrested, he's taken to Caiaphas' house, and then he's nailed to a cross. See, that's his current circumstances. You think yours is rough? I'm not saying it's not rough. I'm just saying his current circumstances were rough too, and here's his promise. Take heart. Take heart's like just relax and take a breath. Take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, you struggling? 
your current circumstances got you down, the book of Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest that cannot empathize with us, that Jesus suffered every temptation and every trial that you and I have suffered. You've had friends turn your back on you, so did Jesus. You got money problems? Jesus didn't have enough money to pay his taxes one time. You ever read that one? Now, he had a little trick. He sent Peter to go fishing and caught a fish with his tax money in his mouth, so good luck with that. You know, you might want to try that. Some of you guys are going to have to catch a Goliath grouper because you're kind of behind. Okay, I, I understand. But whatever it is that you have struggled with, Jesus had those same kind of struggles and temptations. And he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the second half of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20, he promises this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, here's the promise of God when you find yourself in some circumstances that are just causing your anxiety level to go up, causing you to worry. He says, take heart, for I have overcome this world, and I promise I'm with you always to the very ends of the age. You see, the reality is, is that we don't follow after Jesus because he makes our life better. We follow after Jesus because he is better than life. It's just true. Listen, this week, this week I was with a man in the hospital in his last minutes. He's a friend of mine named Bob. He's an older guy that was diagnosed with cancer a couple years ago, a few years ago. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, he was not walking with Jesus. But cancer brought him to a place to examine his eternity. And God used this ministry and some of the things we do and a lot of people in his family to lead Bob to the place where he surrendered his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And two very significant events happened, at least to give me some perspective on our circumstances when they are not going the way we think they should go. One is in December when I went to visit Bob in the hospital. He said this. He said, I would rather die with cancer and Jesus than to try to live without either one. And then his daughter and his wife in the hospital on Friday, as he's breathing his last breath, they said, I guess we should thank God for cancer because without God laying this on our family, he wouldn't know Jesus and we wouldn't be all here together like that. You see, when you got that kind of faith, what you going to worry about? See, a lot of us act like we're going to live here forever. I got a newsflash. 100 years, we're all out. You got that? In 100 years, I don't care how much spinach you eat. You're done. <laughs> and so what are you going to cling to? Your cholesterol? It ain't going to matter much. And so what Jesus offers us is clinging to one that would never, ever, ever, ever let us go. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So when you look around your current circumstances and the enemy has you look at the stuff around you and causes you to worry and steals your rest, it's because we're not believing this promise. Take heart that Jesus has overcome the world and he is with you even to the very ends of the age. You see this one time when I was in Israel? <laughs> I climbed up on the mountain of Beatitudes. You can do that. It's crazy. You'll go with me. It's in Galilee. It's awesome. kind of looks like Israeli Napa. It's beautiful. Hills and green, and they have bananas and stuff instead of wine, but it's cool. And we go up on the mountain of Beatitudes where Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And I went over on this rock, and I'm just reading his sermon where he preached it. And he says this. He's talking about, or I guess I'm talking about what he's talking about right now. And he says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, let's just be honest. If you're anxious, how do you do that? I mean, try that, right? Especially husbands. Try this, all right? 
The next time you see your wife worry, just be like, stop worrying. And then when she doesn't, be like, oh, Jesus said, stop worrying. Let me tell you what won't happen. She won't be like, well, thank you, honey, for speaking the word of the Lord to me. No. (laughs) That's what Jesus says to do. Hey, you worried? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, stop. It's like trying to sleep. What do you just... It's not working, I don't know. But he's gonna tell us, he goes, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? We would all agree with that. The sum total of your life is not just what you eat and what you wear. And then he says, look at the birds of the air. Now, I was standing on the mountain. Here's what I think, here's what I know. Jesus did not preach in a Walmart or an old sports bar, you understand? They're out on a mountain. So I think when Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, he pointed and the whole crowd went, and there were birds of the air flying by. And he goes, look over there at the birds, and they all look at the birds. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You know what Jesus said? He goes, look at the birds. Everybody looks, and there are birds flying. Have you ever seen a bird worry? You ever seen a bird be anxious? Have you seen a bird go to another bird and be like, hey, bird, what's up? Why are you so worried? The Dow. I mean, this election, are you kidding me? What are we going to do? What are you worried about? My kid trying to get into the right school? I just don't know what to do. You know what the, you ever seen a bird worry about baby birds? No. Do you know what their parenting tactic is? They build a nest as high as they can every year. And right before the birds are ready, they kick them out of the nest. Good luck! <laughs> They don't worry at all. They worry about where they're going to live. They just see a stick. They're like, ooh, a stick. I think I'll put that back with my tree fork. Seems like I do this all the time. That's what they do. And the point is not, I'm not saying don't plan. I'm just saying if the birds who don't plan at all, if they don't have to worry because God takes care of the birds, did you ever consider that you're more important than the birds? Now, don't tell PETA. They'll lose their mind. But they can be wrong. You have the right to be wrong. But the reality is, is the birds are creation. You're a part of the family that your Father in heaven knows what you need, and if he's taking care of the birds, we're, we know he's gonna take care of us. And then he asked this question, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Are you worried about your current circumstances? Uh-huh. Well, how's that working? Not too good. And in fact, Jesus already knows this. Don't you love when, when, when science eventually catches up with the Bible? You see, Jesus knew that not only by worrying can you not add a single hour to your life, you can subtract a bunch of them. You know that, right? I mean, find an old person around here. By the way, if you're old people, we love you. We're so glad you're here. Honest to goodness. I know we're a very young church, but we love having old people here because without this, we are just a tired old youth group. You understand? And so we need, the more old people, the better. But find some old people in here, and you get them old enough, and they won't be offended that you call them old, like Dr. Paul. Find Dr. Paul, all right, one of our elders. He's 80-something years old. And say, how'd you get old? And he will not answer this way. He won't be like, worry. Stress, anxiety, that is the secret to a long and healthy life. It's actually the exact opposite of that. It's the people that understand that he's a good dad and he loves his children that don't seem to worry about their current circumstances. That's what Jesus is preaching here on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. And if the birds are over there, I think the flowers are over there. And everybody turns their head and there's lilies. And he goes, how they grow and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what do we eat or what do we drink or what do we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And when he says Gentiles here, he doesn't just mean people that aren't born Jewish. He means people that don't believe in God. Jesus is essentially saying, hey, if you're freaking out about your current circumstances and you're not a Christian, okay, that makes a lot of sense because you're in charge of your own life, but I thought you said you were a Christian. And to say that you're a Christian means that you believe that through Christ's death and resurrection that you have a relationship with your heavenly Father. But when you worry, when you let the enemy steal away your rest because of your current circumstances, you're like a practical atheist. You say you believe in God, you just don't act like it. Because he's a good dad. 189 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God, not as sovereign king, Lord, judge, which are all true, but as father. The promise that we're not believing when we allow the enemy to steal our rest because of our current circumstances is we forget to believe that he's a good dad and he loves his kids. And so he says, you're like the Gentiles seeking after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. So maybe you're looking around right now and you don't have a job or you don't have a date or you don't have enough money or you don't have whatever or you do have too much of this or whatever and the thing that the enemy is stealing away from you is this promise that you need to believe in is that he's a good dad and he loves his kids. And I've told you this a million times. You know, I didn't grow up in church. And one of God's graces on me from not going, growing up, up in church is I grew up with a good dad who loved his kids. And the reason we go to church is because we went fishing every Sunday. And we didn't do that cool kind of fishing like you do, like deep sea and redfish, of which you should invite me. I'm pro-fishing. Jesus did a lot of ministry on a boat. Okay, let's go. <laughs> but we went, we went brim fishing in the Little P.D. River every Sunday in a handmade John boat that my daddy and granddaddy made. And my granddaddy is Joseph Perry Martin Sr. My daddy is Joseph Perry Martin Jr. I'm the third. I was this close from being a junior, junior. Okay, that happens where I'm from occasionally, all right? You understand? And JP's the fourth. We're really into us. But we would go fishing. And as a kid, do you know what I worried about? Nothing. Nothing. I didn't worry about how we were going to get there. We had a 73 Chevy with three on the column, man. That's what we would take. No AC, a little triangle window, you know, to let the smoke out. My dad would smoke like a freight train, all right? And we listened to Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire on an 8-track the whole way there. And I didn't worry about fishing license. Why? Because that's what my daddy, he had it. I didn't worry about the bait. I didn't worry about whether we were going to catch fish or not, you know? And daddy would catch one. But where'd you catch that one, daddy? He'd go right there in the mouth. All those kind of daddy things, you know? But you know what the fundamental truth I learned that paved the way to my faith in Jesus? Even though my daddy taught me nothing about Jesus, you know what he did teach me? That a good dad loves his kids. That a good dad loves his kids and always provides and always protects. So when I heard the gospel, actually my dad's lack of taking me to church had paved the way because he took me fishing. And he taught me this lesson in in that Jesus was trying to teach in the Sermon on the Mount that in my experience, very few Christians actually believe that God is a good dad and he loves his kids. You see, now I'm on the dad end of that equation. Like I said, man, I mean, we, I take my kids fishing, but you know what we do a lot? We go to Disney. We're Disney people. I told you, we go. We go to Disney. And you know what my kids worry about when we go to Disney? Nothing. They don't worry about, any, they don't worry about where we're staying because we cover it. 
They don't worry about how much it costs at all because we cover. They don't worry about their fast passes or what we're going to eat or which rides we're going to go or which part we're going to go to. I mean, they don't. We go. We spend thousands of dollars. We stand in line for hours. We ride two rides, and we still got to buy them a $10 balloon on the way out so they don't lose their minds, right? The happiest place on earth, whatever. But do you know why we do it? We don't do it for us. Now, some of you people go to the Magic Kingdom just without kids. God bless your ministry, all right? I don't know what that's about, but I'm sure you're into it. We're a movement for all people. You can stay, all right? But we don't. We do it for our kids because we love them, and we love to give good gifts to our kids. And the glory that we receive in him, in that experience is because we are able to just love on our kids, He's a, regardless of your current circumstances. And sometimes we say, no, you can't have cotton candy for lunch and breakfast and dinner because we love you. No. And they cry, and they pitch a fit, and you know, and we steal somebody's leash that they're carrying their kids around with, and we wear them out. All right, in Jesus' name, because we love them. And sometimes, God, you reach out to God and say, God, why? And will you please? And he says, I love you. No, but the fundamental promise that you have to believe where you find rest is this. Regardless of your current circumstances, he's a good dad. He's a good dad, and he loves his children. So the next time, the next time, you find yourself looking at your current circumstances and wondering why, then what you've got to do is you've got to remember the promise of God. Listen, you're more important than the birds, and he is a good dad, and he loves his children. He loves his children. And some of you are like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not worried so much about the past, and, and I'm not worried so much about the present. Man, I'm, I'm stressed out about the future. I mean, I look into the future, and oh, my goodness, give me a break. There's so much to worry about. I mean, this election coming up, are you kidding me? These are really our options? Wow, I mean, whatever side you're on, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm just going to tell you, read your Bible, pray, vote early, vote often, you understand? But even now, you look at that, and everybody's like, oh, this is real? Sometimes, don't you feel like you're getting punked? You're like, no? Oh, this is it, okay. And so, you get freaked out about that. Or you worry about uh, uh, the economy, and, or, or you worry about the, the morality of our, of our society, or you worry about growing crime, or you worry about the kind of world our kids are going to grow up in, or you worry about that sort of stuff. And the extreme version of that, you go to Arizona and you dig a hole and get some canned goods and live underground. And just wait it out. But some, some of you, what, what the enemy is doing, the enemy is coming into your life, and he's freaking you out about the future. I mean, he comes at us. Some of us, he comes at from the past. Some of us in our current circumstances, and some of you, he, he comes at you from the future. Just so you would, fear would just paralyze you. And here's, this would be my encouragement to you. If the future freaks you out, then you're not looking far enough into the future. What Jesus is going to say in Revelation chapter 21 is Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And if you read through the book, okay, if you get towards the end, it gets a lot worse before it gets better. And so if you've got your Bibles, go to Revelation chapter 21. If you're new to Bible study, I'm going to encourage you never to start your Bible study in uh, Revelation. It kind of freak you out a little bit. But I'm a professional. I can take us there safely this morning. But you see, <clears throat> what I would encourage you to do is if the future freaks you out, if your future freaks you out, then get your eyes off of your, like, your weekly planner or even this election cycle or even this year and get your eyes up over the horizon to God's plan for humanity. You see, ultimately, God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you. And I'm coming back, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you to my father's house. And in my father's house, there are many, many rooms. There's even one for you. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, this is a picture of the future. 
It says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Basically, what God is promising here is the whole thing started in a garden, and it's going to end in a city. That we live life between two trees. That there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and there's the tree of life in the city. And right in the middle of that is the tree on which Jesus hung. And when he says, it is finished, it counted for you. For every single person that surrenders their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you have an advanced invitation into this great city where there are no more tears and there is no more pain and there is no cancer and nobody walks with a limp nor a swagger. And he's bringing us back to that perfect relationship he had with the very first people. Like when God created Adam in the form of a man and he breathed life or ruah or breath or spirit into him and Adam opened his eyes, he was face to face with his heavenly father. And sin tore that relationship apart, but Jesus sent his only begotten son on a rescue mission to reconcile that relationship so that one day in heaven, which he is describing right here, you and I will be face to face with our creator. Verse five says, and he who was seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. You see, this is the promise of the future. If the future freaks you out, you're just not looking far enough in. If you look far enough out, it says, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Or it is finished. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. And in another place, the Bible says, when all things are made new, that Jesus will be seated on the throne. And we will be face to face with him. And then angels and the tribes of Israel will be surrounding him. And they'll take off their crowns, and they'll lay it at the feet of Jesus, and they'll sing the song together. We will sing this song at the throne of Jesus, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the Bible says that song is on repeat for eternity in heaven, which is interesting, right? Because in Joshua, God gave them peace on every side. And I don't know about you, but in in my life, the enemy, he comes at me from the past sometimes, and sometimes he comes at me in my current circumstances, and sometimes he comes to me in the future. But the Bible says that there will be a day where we say, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see, God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And if you can believe that, regardless of your past, regardless of your current circumstances, regardless of of what you see out of the front windshield, if you can really believe, I mean really trust, like really lean into that God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises, then that's a truth that you can rest in. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul." Some of you may say, now how can we believe that God always keeps his promises? Here's how we can believe it. 
Because once and for all, he's already kept his great eternal and the biggest promise that he ever made is that his perfect son would conquer sin and death. And let me just tell you, I've been to the tomb. It's empty. He is not there. He is alive. And in Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. How will, he not, he will, how will he not also give us all of those promises that he has promised? Who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Would you please stand and pray with me? Dear God, you know every heart, you know every situation in this church, Lord. And God, for many of us, even the word rest just sounds like a foreign concept. And Lord, um, God, we're not just asking for sleep. We're not just asking for calendar adjustment. Lord, we're asking for rest for our souls. So Holy Spirit, for every man, woman, and student in this place, God, would you, would you give us the faith to believe that you are who you say you are and that you always keep your promises? And God, when we begin to doubt it because of our past or our current circumstances or because of our fears in the future, God, may we look to an empty tomb as proof positive that you always keep your promises. And God, in the meantime, I would pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be a comforter to us, that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that you would give us a peace that transcends all understanding. And even if our current circumstances are all jacked up, God, our marriage is jacked up, our finances are jacked up, our kids are jacked up, and our friends and our neighbors look at us and say, how are you making it? You can, we could just really lean into the truth that you're a good dad and you've still got the whole world in your hands. God, would you move in that kind of way among us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And folks, we respond to the gospel. That's what we do. God initiates and we respond. We're gonna respond by singing those words out of the book of Revelation. It's called Revelation Song. And so all of us should join our voices together and proclaim the truth of God's word back to God for his glory and for our joy. And many of you need to come down to the altar and cast your care upon him because he cares for you. No matter how big your prayer is, he can handle it, I promise. And then if you're a regular here, this is our time that we worship God by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and best, because Jesus first loved us by giving us his best, his very own life. Let us respond.